and we're live. So hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to my uh, next episode of In Conversations with Changemakers. This is where I get an opportunity to sit down with individuals that genuinely have an impact with the organisations that they work. They have an impact on our communities, society, the, the economy in general. So today, I'm absolutely delighted um, to welcome Karen Vespore. Uh, Karen is the Executive Dean for the School of Computing and Technologies at RMIT. Uh, welcome, Karen. Thank you so much, Luli. Thanks for having me. Ah, my pleasure. Now, now today's theme is uh, ethical and effective AI in health. But before I go into the topic, Karen, can you just tell me a little bit about your role at RMIT and what you actually do on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so I guess as executive dean, I'm responsible for the whole school. And that means um, all the people who work in the school, but importantly, all of the students who study in the schools. So um, my day-to-day -day is, is a lot of thinking about um, how we can, what we're going to be teaching, how we can improve our teaching, um, really thinking about, you know, what, what are the elements of a good education in computing and IT, um, and, and then also supporting research and making sure that um, we're thinking about research that has an impact on the real world. And not just um, you know writing papers for the sake of writing papers, but but um, really getting people to think about the value of research for for society. So uh, there's a mix of um, administrative responsibilities, uh, leadership responsibilities, and um, just you know making it a great place to work and a great place to study. Now, and, and, and and I know that you love the work that you do, Karen. Um, but now I can't. I can't move on without asking the question of the, the impact of the past year, the impact on the pandemic on, on your role uh, and what that's mean in regards to how you've had to change, I guess, what would have been business as usual. Um, so if you could just share some of those things with us, Karen, that would be, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, sure. So I'm actually new to this role. I took up this role in mid-February. And um, when I took the role and, and started in this, in this uh, at, at RMIT, um, my boss, the deputy vice chancellor and the, the vice president of the College of STEM, Alex Subic, he said to me, this is a transition year. This is a year when we move <laughs> out of the pandemic and, you know, into the future of, of education. And, um, yeah, I believe that. I really believe that in February because in February things were, were looking good and we were talking about, you know, shifting our, our classes back on campus and recreating, re invigorating the, the student experience and so on. And here we are back in lockdown, uh, lockdown number six. Number six. And I guess we're fine in lockdown number six. And, you know, we're finding that, um, you know, that old adage of, of um, nothing is more sure than, than change or whatever the expression <laughs> is. Um, but, but clearly, you know, what we thought was going to be happening this year isn't exactly what's happening. And, it means that we have to constantly be um, thinking about how to how to approach the situation and just be dynamic and mm. responsive to what's going on. You know, we, we can't change the situation. We're not you know, we can't control the, the spread of this virus. So what we need to do is adapt to it. Mm. And and that's really the, the biggest impact has been, you know, the uncertainty around uh, the future. Mm -hmm. So as soon as we make plans, the pandemic comes along and, and changes those plans. So our plan for semester two this year was to be 75% on campus, have 
our students, you know, in face-to-face experiences again. Um, and that's not happening. So uh, when that will happen, who knows? Uh, so we can only plan to, to make the experience the best that it, that it can be. Mm. Um, and, you know, in my role, supporting my staff to really um, kind of cope with the uncertainty is, is one of the, the biggest impacts that, that I've had to to deal with. Yeah, of course, of course, I can't even imagine. And I won't even get onto the subject of international students, uh, Karen, otherwise we're never going to get onto the topic of uh, AI and health. So uh, we'll just accept it's a very, it's a very challenging situation all around. Um, but get onto, onto the topic of AI in health. Um, before I go into my questions, just to, you know, for the audience to get an understanding, your def- when, you, when, when you talk about AI in health, AI in health, what's your definition, Karen? What do you mean by it? So when I talk about AI and health, I'm thinking about leveraging computational algorithms and methods to uh, really build, well, to to make more sense out of data. And that means Mm. multiple things. So that means um, working with natural language. uh, So that my background is actually in, in natural language processing. And given that um, in health, so much of our uh, documentation, so much of clinical reasoning, um, so much of the day-to-day kind of information about um, patients in a hospital setting, for instance, is captured in language, um, we need something which understands language, really, in order to be able to to make use of, of that data. And so it's it's partly about, you know, leveraging the computational tools to transform data into information, um, which requires a certain level of of intelligence and understanding. Um, And then it's also about, um, again, using that computational power to find patterns in this very complex set of data in order to to make predictions and ultimately to support clinical decision-making. And and, and has the... the pandemic um, impacted or had an effect on the need for AI in health? Yeah, so I guess there's there's two levels at which that's true. One is just the broader context of, of um, digital health, right? So so we've seen um, we've seen in, in the pandemic that um, there is, first of all, um, a very urgent need for information. And um, one way to capture that information is through digital means. And so we've, we've seen this kind of desperate, um, well, this urgency around collecting information and all of, all of the policy decisions that are being made are, are guided by information. And that's at multiple levels. Like how is the, how is the, um, the virus spreading? What is, you know, what is the mortality of the virus? Um, but also things like, what do we know about treating and managing, um, the virus and what are best practices? You know, what is the impact of masks? All of this relies on evidence um, mm-hmm. at some point, and and so that um, you know that requires collecting and and synthesizing of of information from from many sources. We've seen you know from a digital health perspective, we've seen telehealth take off, right? And and now people are mm-hmm. having you know. Uh, video conferences with their GPs. And, and so that's not really requiring AI. It could be supported by AI, of course, but, but the typical use of that is, is just digital health. It's moving healthcare into, into a digital setting. 
But AI has a specific role to play in that in that kind of information extraction and evidence synthesis side of things. Really, how can we um, find the patterns and the trends and help interpret the data that's out there? But how, have we got better, Karen? Do you think you know, as a result of this, in the way that we actually capture data and aggregate it, so we can make uses of a you know technology advancements like AI? It's still a work in progress. So I think what, mm. what's happened as a result of the pandemic is that we're more aware of the need for, for doing that. Mm. Um, but the problem is that our infrastructure hasn't quite caught up to, to that need just yet. Mm. And so, um, you know, we have a lot, of, a lot of issues which impact AI particularly around um, data sharing and data governance and essentially ensuring that we respect the privacy of the data. You know, AI algorithms are hungry for data and we can't bring together large data sets unless we, unless we have mechanisms for doing that. And that's one of the key things that I think is missing at the moment. So there are, you know, efforts to, to kind of bring together data from multiple sources, um, but we're not, quite, we're not quite there yet. And so the kinds of, of um, uses of AI that we've seen during, during COVID have been fairly narrow. So they've either been focused on data that's been coming out of one hospital or, or maybe one hospital system that's, that's a bit connected, um, but very little that, that's been um, based on data from multiple countries, right? And, and really mm-hmm. um, the, the biggest data set is the, is the international data set, right? If we could pool all the information we have, um, then, then we would, then we would be able to make much better models. Um, mm. But that hasn't happened because we don't really have the mechanisms or the infrastructure in place. Um, and as I said, the, that data governance piece of it, which is a huge, huge aspect of it, because ultimately this is, you know, he- your health data and it's something you mm. want to be, you want to be confident is, is um, being used in, in a safe way and a way that, you know, preserves your privacy and, and can't be, I guess, used against you. Yeah, and I think I think that's something that people are very um, conscious and, and nervous about when you know the, when we when we talk about data sharing information and, and AI and the like. So I mean, I guess that leads nicely into my next question, um, Karen, around the the role of ethics um, and you know the, the role that ethics how does it fit into the whole development and implementation and implementation of AI. Yeah, so ethics is huge, obviously, and and it has multiple mm-hmm. dimensions. I think you know the first dimension is that that dimension we were just talking about of um, preserving the privacy of the individuals mm-hmm. that are that are um, represented in our in our data sets. Um, but there's also um, the kinds of of um, problems that we solve with that data, and we have to think about about um, you know even more fundamentally, how do we collect the data? What data are we collecting? Are there biases in in those those data sets um, that then influence the the predictions of of the models? And so, you know, there's this question of okay, yeah, we have to be we have to be careful in in how we work with the data. But more importantly, you kind of have to go right back to the basics and say whose data are we collecting, and is that a fair mm. representation? Um, uh, of the population, because there's plenty of, of um, evidence of, of bias in that. You know, if you if you go to genomics, for instance, um, we we know that about um, 
I think it's something like 80% of all the genomic data that's been captured is for Caucasian, mostly men, mm-hmm. right? So, um, yeah. you know, what does that, so any, any time we're, we're basing decisions based on genomic profiles, um, we're in, inherently working with a biased data set um, because we're comparing people of different races and ethnicities um, to a standard, a reference, literally a reference genome, which is, which is primarily comprised of people who are actually genetically quite different um, from them. I mean, obviously, we're at some level, we're all genetically very similar, but, um, but the, the variations actually impact our, uh, you know, our, our health and our ability to um, respond to, to different, different illnesses. So right at that kind of basic level of, you know, genomic information, we already know that, that, that it's biased. And, and, and that then, seems like a quick, yeah, easy fix, Karen. Like, you know, that seems like it should be a quick, easy fix to get the diversity in the genomic data sets to, so that it's not skewed um, to, to one part. Yeah, you would think. Um, but, you know, of course, the step one to solving any problem is recognizing you have the problem. problem and yeah. I, I think people weren't really aware of it um, until people started asking the question. So that's that's part mm. of, you know, our maturation, I suppose, in 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 how we're thinking about data. Um, you know, often computer scientists like me will, will say, oh, just give me your data. And they don't necessarily mm. think about, you know, who collected the data? Why it was collected? You know, uh, mm-hmm. who's represented in those in those in those data sets? Um, but we have to ask those questions in order to kind of mitigate against any any potential biases um, that that there might be. You know, mm-hmm. another example is in randomized controlled trials. Men are very heavily overrepresented in in those randomized controlled trials as compared to women. Why women um, end up being excluded? For multiple reasons. One, if you're pregnant, you're often, you know, excluded, which mm-hmm. which seems fair, right? But that means that mm-hmm. pregnant women are understudied relative to relative to the general population, and it also means that you know women as a whole then become left at, get left out of of the studies. Um, um, elderly people are often excluded, and because women live longer, that means that we have disproportionate um, lack of representation of women, again, in, in, in these randomized controlled trials. So we're basically studying, you know, young white men most of the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so again, our information base about um, kind of men versus women or, or um, Caucasians versus um, Africans um, is very, mm. very uneven. And, and mm. so we're making decisions, you know, for, we think we're making decisions for the population as a whole, when in fact, we're, mm. we're basing those decisions on a relatively narrow um, set. So the, I guess, so with, with that in mind, Karen, just in regards to, like, we know there's a lack of diversity in the technology sector. Right. And, you know, it's the tech sector that, that's driving and developing these algorithms. That, so, you know, is there a potential risk there that these unconscious, these biases carry through in regards to the de- development of the, the algorithms, uh, which are then making the assessments and the analysis on the, the data that they're, that, you know, they're, they're, they're working with? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's human nature to um, ask, why am I, am I represented in, in this data set? How am I represented mm -hmm. in this data set? Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, if you have a very homogenous team of people um, working on, mm -hmm. on a technology, they're going to be looking for themselves, but that means that mm -hmm. the technology will probably reflect who's in the room. And, and mm -hmm. so by not having diversity um, in the room, you, you end up mm -hmm. not asking those questions. And it's not that, you know, there's any sort of malice or intentional kind of exclusion. No. It's just that, that, you know, people aren't, the people who, who, who might ask the question um, aren't in the room to ask the question. And so that kind mm -hmm. of has this, you know, this ongoing impact that um, they're potentially not represented in, in the technology mm -hmm. in some, either in the data or in, it, in how it's used. Is, is there a role with that then, Karen? Is there a role for, be it standards or frameworks, that, that there should be a minimal representation of, uh, for, for it to be a fair analysis of a particular data set? So I guess, you know, defining exactly what diversity you need is, is tricky. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. I, I'm, you know, maybe, maybe best practices is a better way to think about it than sort of like standards yeah. or rules. Um, because, yeah. you know, it's, it's hard it's hard to bean count these things, I guess. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, look, as a woman in, in technology, I know I'm in the minority, but I also know that I come from a very privileged kind of background, right? And, and mm -hmm. um, my experience and me looking for something in the technology is not the same as, as somebody mm -hmm. who's had um, a, a less kind of privileged experience. Um, mm -hmm. And there's so, so many dimensions to diversity, right? It's not just male versus uh, female. It's, it's, it's ethnicity, it's race, it's linguistic inclusion. Um, you know, I, I come from a family that, that my, my parents are Dutch. Um, we, I was born in French speaking Africa. You know, we grew up with lots of different languages around and even that linguistic divide in, in a lot of our technology um, isn't obvious mm -hmm. unless you have um, people of different language backgrounds uh, in the room. And so there's so many dimensions to it. I think if we, you know, uh, and then there's, you know, sexuality and gender identity and all sorts of things, mm -hmm. right? So, so we don't, I think, want to, you know, necessarily articulate every dimension that needs to be represented. Mm -hmm. um, um, but I think we can talk about the net effect of having a diverse representation in, in, in teams, in a company, in, you know, uh, a project team, what, whatever level is appropriate, but enforcing it through kind of standards is, is, it, it, yeah, it's a bit murky, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, yeah, that, that's a, a whole different conversation. So I mean, like, I guess, you know, <laughs> don't get me on tech diversity because I'll, I'll, <laughs> it will take up another hour. Um, so, I mean, I guess with, with all that in mind, you know, what, what are the, or what is the, what are the biggest challenges, um, you know, facing AI enabled health services? So I think there's two key factors. One is the data side of things, which we already talked about, yeah. sort of the lack mm -hmm. of, um, ability to connect large data sets together. Um, and when we're talking about AI- so, so, health, Sorry yeah. to cut in on you there, Karen. The ability to connect large data sets, that's not a tech 
problem? Is it that that is that a is, is that a people jurisdictional willingness collaboration problem for the tech thing? Yeah, well, yeah. it's both. It's both, actually. So, so definitely, there's the jurisdictional aspects and the privacy aspects, and so on that that um, we talked about. You know, who owns the data? Is it my data? Is it the hospital's data? Yeah. All of those things um, matter in that conversation. But it's also a technology um, problem because at the moment, um, there are all different systems out there for collecting data in health. Um, different software tools, and there isn't really standardization around the actual representation of the data. Some things are, are quite standardized. So, you know, pathology results um, or blood biomarkers or these sorts of things are, are, are um, quite standardized because there are lots of different labs out there. They have to produce a report that is basically consistent, um, that are consistent with each other. But the kind of day-to-day clinical observations that are captured um, by a GP or that are captured in a hospital setting um, are often represented in very ad hoc ways. And um, so, so part of what we need to do is actually um, think about kind of standardized ways of, of representing mm. clinical data. And we're on a path to doing that. So there's, there's um, uh, an effort to establish a kind of international common data model around clinical clinical data. Um, and once we do that, then it's much easier to build um, algorithms that can um, you know take take a data set from from one place and and feed it into a model that's been developed on a data set from from another another hospital or another location. But without that, you have this kind of, you know, it's it's almost like a translation problem. You know, how do we how do we take data that's been captured in one language, in one system, in one set of, of fields uh, and attributes in, in a database and convert it into something that's consistent with the representation in, in other um, data sets. So it's yeah, both no, that makes of- and, and, and do, we, do we have the, I guess, the, the, the right people working together uh, here in Australia to, you know, to make that as effective and, you know, and, and get us on the right path to that? As well as the the, the global uh, groups working together, Karen, is that kind of is there a willingness and an appetite and an understanding? That, yeah, yeah. There's de- definitely a willingness, and um, yeah, there's an organization called Odyssey, the Observational Health Sciences Data Initiative, which was started out of Columbia University in in New York City, and they. Um, that has become kind of an international movement. And we now have Odyssey Australia, um, and that's being um, led by Nicole Pratt at uh, University of South Australia and Dougie Boyle at the University of Melbourne. And, um, you know, people, including the CSIRO Australian eHealth Research Centre, um, groups all around the country are engaging with with that. And the objective really there is about this common data model and and trying to transform um, data from across the country, different hospitals um, into into this common representation. There's definitely a will. Um, it's it's time consuming because you know every every hospital um, or hospital system uses mm-hmm. uses a different vendor's um, system. You have to you have to get the clinical knowledge. You know even there are differences between you know the oncology ward and the ICU, like the way they capture and and think about the data is 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 different mm. because they're using it for different purposes and so um 
you know, there's a lot of kind of massaging of the data that, that has to be done in order mm. to make it more comparable across different, different sources. But there is definitely a will. We're making progress on it. It's just, it's just a relative. Yeah, slope. I think you know, if, if uh, everyone recognizes the benefits of getting this right, uh, and the you know, it's all about you know improving patient care, patient outcomes. Um, so I think like, whenever you know, the definitely the fact that we've been having these types of conversations now, Karen, and I think uh, that they're common conversations which are, are happening and understandings which are happening within health it is encouraging. Yeah, so I also wanted to say that another challenge, you know, so that's the data side of things, but another challenge is the human side of things, as you kind of alluded to, which is um, really about building trust in these systems, but also knowing their limitations, right? And um, one one problem that I've observed is that, you know, we often build these, these AI models that make predictions, but the prediction that they're making is not necessarily the prediction that's most relevant to the clinician or the person making making a decision with with that prediction. So, um, you know, sometimes the the AI, AI models can predict things like maybe it's a classification model that distinguishes I don't know one disease from another, um, but that's not really necessarily a tough decision for a clinician to make, right? So, right. so yeah, okay. some, some of the models from a clinical usage perspective are a little bit trivial. And then when they mm. make mistakes, then, you know, the, the human on the other side of it goes, well, you know, it's trivial yeah. and it, it's making mistakes. So, right. you know, yeah. Yeah. who's I... responsible for building the model? Well, so it's usually, you know, data scientists or computer scientists who come yeah. in and they build yeah. these models, but, but, you know, the, the point I, I want to make there is it's really important for, for the data scientists or the computer scientists to be working with the clinicians so that the, the we, clinician. yes. we yes. can identify tasks that are actually, you know, going to help yes. the clinician rather than just feeling like a yes. distraction. Yes. And that, that, and that goes back to, I mean, it's, there's always been this disconnect between, um, a lot of the time between IT departments and business departments, right? And it goes back to the old age of, you know, IT departments making decisions around uh, technology, which is going to be used in the business, but not doing it in consultation with the business. So what gets rolled out doesn't help the business. Uh, and, you know, you know, you know, exactly. And then, and then thinking yeah. about, how it fits into the workflows and, you know, at what point in, you know, my yep. process as a clinician, not being a clinician, but anyway, uh, you know, yes. what point in my process as a clinician, do I use this tool and yes. what decision is it, what decision is it supporting? Um, and I, I think, you know, again, that requires this kind of dialogue around, yeah this isn't just a tool that's going to plug in and, and it's, a, it's not a widget that sits on your dashboard, you know, it's a, it's, yes. a, it's a tool that has to help you do something. So what, what's, what's the yes. something and, you know, really thinking about the value of the tool um, and then also, you know, how best to, to integrate it. Yes. That sounds like some good old fashioned peer to peer communication that's needed in that scenario. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. But there's, you know, th that surprisingly doesn't happen as much yeah. as it should. And, um, you know, there's, there's, again, a lot of, I said this earlier, and I don't mean to be disparaging to my fellow yeah. computer scientists, but there is a lot of this I idea that just give me yeah. the data, you know, throw right. it over the fence. 
and give me the data and let me work with it. We'll build you this beautiful model. And, you know, you've got the people um, who, who are on the other side of that going, yeah, but you've just built me something that I can't yeah. use for one reason or another. So would that be, a, I guess, a big major like, piece of advice in regards to your, you know, your fellow peers and the communities in general in regards to collaborate and working together? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, like you said, it, this is pretty basic, right? You yeah. have to talk to to the people who are going to use your tools. And yeah. and moreover, you have to integrate them into the process of developing the tools. And so it's, it's you know, it's not just yeah. we're going to test this with some users. It's no, we're going to right from the beginning, we're going to we're going to help develop and design yeah. something that yeah. is really led by the user and yeah. and the need for for the tool. Mm -hmm. And honestly, you know, as a computer scientist working in health, there's so much about health that I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And I really rely on my relationships with, with, um, our, with clinical partners to explain mm -hmm. the context, to give me the kind of, um, you know, the, the lens through which I need to look at the data. Um, because if we just approach it, you know, naively, we're, mm -hmm. we're going to make a lot of assumptions implicitly along the way that, that, um, aren't going to be valid in the context where it's going to be used. Yeah. So I mean, so, it's yeah, all good intentions, right, isn't it? But without that, I guess that co-design co approach, um, it's not going to deliver the potential value and outcomes that, that everybody needs and everyone's looking for. You got it. Exactly right. Okay. Well, listen, Karen, that, that has been fantastic. Thank you very much. And, you know, you know, on behalf of my fellow Australian citizens, uh, thank you for the great work that you do and, and continue to do. Uh, and we look forward to, to reaping the benefits of uh, AI and health in the future. Me too. Thank you so much, Lily. Thank you, Karen.